Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. Hey, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we revisit our conversation with drummer Chris France of Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll also share some of our favorite Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club tracks. But first, Chris France. That's a little bit of the song Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads off their 1980 masterpiece, Remain in Light. Jim, both of us are huge fans of Talking Heads since their debut record in 1977 when the group burst out of the New York punk scene with a sound uh, pretty much all its own at that time. A sound and a look, Greg. The core of the band was always singer David Byrne, drummer Chris France, bassist Tina Weymouth, and keyboardist and guitarist Jerry Harrison. Talking Heads was this incredible sonic blend of different elements that would eventually be called New Wave, or Art Pop, or Funk, uh, Post Punk, you name it, they were all of those things. Among the group's leather-clad contemporaries at CBGB, like the Ramones, the Dead Boys, or the more pop-oriented Blondie, Talking Heads didn't sound like anybody else. And with their khakis and their collared Izod shirts, they didn't look like anybody else either. Yes, absolutely, Jim, and uh, they went on to have a huge musical career, making eight albums from 1977 through 1988 and releasing one of the most iconic concert films ever made, Stop Making Sense. Now, each of the four members uh, went on to a degree of individual success, and Tina Weymouth and uh, Chris Franz found a second creative life with their group Tom Tom Club. This week, we're excited to talk with the drummer of Talking Heads and the person whose idea it was to get the band together in the first place, Chris France. Chris recently released a memoir, Remain in Love, which tells the story of his life in Talking Heads and his personal and professional partnership with Heads and Tom Tom Club bassist Tina Weymouth, France's spouse since 1977. It's an inspiring love story. Chris, welcome to Sound Opinions, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Congratulations on this book. It is written in very plain-spoken language, fun to read. It's as if we were sitting on the couch with you, and you're telling us these fascinating tales of you making music. I have got to ask, the accounts of those early tours, and then later ones that we all saw, you know, in, in on film and everywhere else, are so detailed and vivid, remembering the places, the backstage locales and the faces, and then even giving us the set list. Were you keeping a journal this whole time? You know, I'm still kicking myself that I didn't keep a journal. In fact, I even went out and bought a couple of journals thinking that I should be keeping a journal, and I never got it together. Hmm. But fortunately for me, Tina kept uh, date books 
not really a journal, but like date books like you buy at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. For example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the one for 1977 has King Tut on the cover. <laughs> Remember him? <laughs> and, uh, it was a big deal, yeah. Uh, Tina was our was our road manager at the time, and so she would write the name of the venue, how many tickets were sold, how many encores we received, and whether or not we liked the promoter. And uh, <laughs> sometimes Very she crucial. would say, "Great, great show, three encores, got paid, made made an additional percentage." And other times she would say. Show was not great. Never come back here again. <laughs> but but most, most of them were very positive. Reading Tina's date books helped trigger memories of various events. So she kept very accurate records of where we were and when. That's how I was able to do that. collected the money too right she's the road manager she was the one that had to go in there and get the money at the end of the gig right and you know you'd read the stories about you know the black musicians and the chitlin circuit they had to go in there sometimes armed you know because the promoter inevitably would be armed and denying them the money so in order to get the money they had to you know bring some Uh heat to the to the uh, negotiation (laughs) did you guys ever have any trouble when you were just starting out getting paid there were there were a couple of times that we didn't get paid properly, um, but fortunately they were very few because uh, nobody wanted to get in trouble with Tina. <laughs> yeah. and, um, uh, she did. I write about it in the book. More than once, she sat down at the desk with the promoter at the end of the night, and he would have a pistol there mm-hmm. yeah. as the, as they counted out the cash. In Nashville, the guy counted out the cash, and he he overcounted. He gave Tina too much. So she counted it, and she said, I'm sorry, sir, you've given me too much. And he couldn't believe it. (laughs) He he invited us back very soon because... Uh, (laughs) An honest band. Yeah, it's that I I think that was pretty rare in his experience. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm sure. You know, the the love of making music in this group comes through. I gather it's one reason, Remain in Love is the title. Uh, Tina Weymouth, your your wife of, of how many years now? Uh, we, we recently celebrated our 43rd anniversary. Yeah, crazy. That is yeah. so awesome. wonderful. Congratulations. <laughs> 43 years, loving music, loving your wife, obviously. Not always loving what I'm going to call the romantic myth that there's a genius in a band, right? That it's not a band, Uh that it's not a collaboration between four people, and sometimes five when the producers were were significant, right? And the press did that to David Byrne, often ignoring that everybody was writing, everybody was essential to the band. It's you started the band. Yes, I I did. I I approached David and said, how would you like to start a band? (laughs) 
And I brought Tina in. I also brought Jerry Harrison in. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in Talking Heads, there were four geniuses. (laughs) (laughs) What drew you to David initially? Because he freely owns up to the fact that he was pretty eccentric uh, from the start. He was a difficult uh, character. He he was very awkward socially. But um, when I played some music with him, I really connected, and he is a great, still is, a great rhythm guitarist, which I love, a good rhythm guitar. There was no, no denying that he had a presence that other people didn't have. He, he had a certain degree of charisma, but in a way it was kind of like, not exactly charisma, it was almost a reverse charisma that he had in the, in the early days. train wreck you might say because <laughs> he because he, he was so awkward and uncomfortable and sweating and uh, you know as he performed that um i think some people thought he was having a nervous breakdown right on stage mm-hmm. but but that's what i mean by a train wreck later he became we all became more sophisticated and more polished but in the early days it was we were a challenging band, I mean, uh, aesthetically. I love the fact in the book that you say that uh, on occasion, since it was the only uh, clean laundry in the loft you and Tina and David shared, David would actually be on stage in some of your Izod polo shirts that Mom had given you for Christmas. Yeah, David would often wear my, my shirts just because his own, uh, I mean, you, when you're Playing at CBGBs, especially in the summer, you go through shirts really quickly. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was happy to lend David my shirts. He looked good in them. Part of the awkwardness that you were talking about was the fact that, you know, here you were this uh, alleged punk band and you didn't look like punks. You were wearing these kind of preppy clothes. And I think a lot of people right away, you stood out as being different. Um, yeah. In reading the book, Chris, I got a sense it was just a matter of, hey, these are the clothes we we wear. I mean, we're not looking to make a fashion statement, um, which in, in, in itself was a statement. I mean, did you think it through that much, or was it just a matter of like, hey, here's the, here's the nearest shirt I can grab, Let, let's put this on? We did think it through. Before we ever did a single show, we said, we're not going to dress like the New York Dolls or, or the Rolling Stones. We're not going to have costumes. We're going mm-hmm. to have every man clothes, like a guy who uh, works at the drugstore would wear, or, or a, hmm. in Tina's case, a woman who sells shoes would wear. We're going to, you know, be normal looking, and, and that's going to be our shtick. And it really mm-hmm. worked, because all the other bands were dressing up in costumes, and, and if not the black leather jackets, they were uh, wearing, like, satin shirts and, and high-heeled snakeskin boots and things. Mm-hmm. And we were just dressed like some kids from the suburbs, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made a big impression. Some some people didn't get it. I remember Johnny mm-hmm. Thunders coming up to me after our first performance and saying, are you guys a feminist band? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, love that. <laughs> I said to him, yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, daddy, come to look at me now. I'm a big man in a great big town. Here's a girl who would be, believe it's true. Goes to show what a little face can do. I was complaining, I was down in the dumps. I felt so strong, I thought you pulled me up, pulled me up, 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 Also key, I think, and, and you really highlight this, was the love from the beginning of black music. Black grooves, yeah. Motown grooves, funk grooves. And, of course, a lot of that comes from you. A lot of it comes from Tina, but she approaches it from the world of classical music and plays it in her own completely unique way. But I wonder, you talk about your Army brat upbringing. Born in Kentucky, uh, travel around a lot. Dad was a general eventually. I wonder how you came to, to be such a lover of, of black music. First of all, the way it sounds... <laughs> I love the way it sounds, but I went for a couple of years to school in Virginia, Episcopalian boarding school for boys. And I was a music lover and I had like my Beatles records, my Stones records, my Birds records. And one of the guys in my dormitory said, oh man, you can't listen to that. He said, you got to listen to soul. I'm going to get you James Brown live at the Apollo. And he went and got it and he put it on my little record player in my room, you know, the first James Brown Live at the Apollo album, and I thought, hmm. oh man, I see what you're talking about. This is really something. Hey, believe me, and then he also introduced me to uh, Stax, which I, I was familiar with Motown because that was all over the airways, but where I lived. But Stax, not so much. And so Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Booker T and the MGs, all that was a real turn on for me. But at the same time, Bob Dylan came out, and the Velvet Underground came out right at that same time. And I, I was an appreciator of all kinds of music. But as a drummer, uh, I, I found soul music, you might say, the most compelling because it was funky and you could dance to it. You could really dance to it. Yeah, that element was not uh, overly present in the scene that you uh, came up in. Uh, you know, the, the groove... Right. You guys had that. The other bands really didn't. I mean, the Ramones are a great band, but they were certainly not a groove, funky band. You had that influence of the funk, but it was seemed very contemporary the way you guys weaved it in there. And was, was that just kind of... I mean, obviously the influence was there for you, but did everybody share in that right from the get-go? How did that sort of evolve uh, sound-wise? Were you writing songs with that sort of danceable groove right, right away? We were attempting to write songs with a danceable groove right away. Yeah, and we didn't always succeed, but that was our our goal. Mm-hmm. And our our other goal was to um, to write songs that were uh, maybe not exactly predictable for a rock group. For example, "Don't Worry About the Government." That song. Mm-hmm. I mean, Im- imagine any other band at that time playing that song.
was pretty radical. And the songwriting, I think you did a nice job in the book, uh, Chris, of, of sort of talking about the collaborative aspects of that. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I scanned the credits on those early records, and it doesn't appear that you guys really got the credit you deserved. Did that cause any tension? Uh, I imagine it did, but was it some bands break up over that kind of stuff? You guys held it yeah. together. How did you, how um, did you manage? We, we could have quit the band over that, but then, but then there wouldn't have been any talking heads. So, mm. so it, we knew that even, even from the very early days, we, we knew that uh, talking heads had some unique chemistry going on that other bands didn't have. And, and we, uh, it was important to us. Uh, we, we shared a lot of aesthetic ideas. We had similar tastes in, in what we were hoping to accomplish. And um, Tina and I learned, and Jerry also learned very early on that, um, you know, D David is just wired in a different way than other people, than you and me. It's difficult for him to, to understand where he ends and other people begin. So if he's mm. collaborating with you on a song, everything goes great. You know, there's give and take. You have an idea. He says, oh, that's good. And he has an idea, and you say, oh, yeah, man, that's great. And it all comes together. And then David says, oh, look at this wonderful song I've written. And uh, <laughs> he kind of forgets that other people were there, too. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we learned early on that this is what we're dealing with and if we want to keep the band going and the music flowing and the the whole gestalt of the thing we're going to have to learn to live with this and and mm -hmm. we did it's not like we didn't call him out on it from time to time like david you seem to have forgotten that i wrote those lyrics <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and yeah. uh I, I would he would say oh we'll change it on the second pressing <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, wow it's sad to read those parts of the book and you don't do it in a uh, uh, I'm going to you know stab him in the back way I mean it just seems uh, at one point you say you suggest uh, that David was somewhere on the spectrum you know as, as you just said now you know difficult uh -huh. to deal with saw things his own way but it just it, it had to have taken a toll on you and Tina and Jerry well, it was a challenge, but one thing I'm trying to convey in this book is, you know, wh when people have written about talking heads in the past, they often accentuate the, the, the conflicts that we had. Every band has conflicts, but it gets kind of boring to hear about those conflicts over and over again. With this book, I was trying to convey that despite some conflicts, we had wonderful times very exciting times and not just once or twice but for years and mm -hmm. we worked really hard and we did great work together and so i want people to know that talking heads was a shared experience and and that it was an excellent experience i've said it before if i had to do it all over again i would because it, that's how good it was mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Well, you know, the the great irony when you hear about how the Ramones were at each other's throats for so long, or some of the conflicts uh, that were part of Talking Heads, you know, it uh -huh. is that uh, I remember being a kid when 
Talking Head 77 came out, WPIX, New York's new wave radio station. And then comes Tina. Bump, bump, bump. I was coming from my first concert at Madison Square Garden, Jethro Tull. All right? <laughs> Nothing Jethro yeah. Tull did that night made me think I could do that. And then I hear Psycho Killer. And it's like, hey, I can, I can, maybe I could do that in my basement with those drums my stepdad gave me. Wow. You know, the, the great message was, Patty said it, Patty Smith, this is the era where everybody creates. Do it. Do something yourself. You know, and, and uh -huh. that's, that's the joy, I think, that comes across in Remain in Love. You know, you've got something to say. What's stopping you? Whether it's going to be the visual art you and Tina were always doing uh, or, or making the music or, uh, you know, films later or the audacity, the audacity for the drummer and the bassist to start a band called Tom Tom Club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that turned out pretty well. I'd say uh, more hits than David ever had as a solo act. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not a contest, you know. Uh, some people try to make it into a contest, but mm. I w I was just happy that we had the success we had. I wish David had had the same amount of success with his. Uh, he's doing well now on Broadway, very well playing Talking Head songs. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> Even then, you there's an anecdote in the book that uh, Seymour Stein, the guy who signed you to to Sire Records, Talking Heads, uh -huh. um, was skeptical about you and Tina doing a solo record. He said, "Oh, I already signed David and Jerry to solo deals. I don't need another band." Was the anecdote, yeah. Uh, yeah. and yet you had the first big major hit of anybody in the band. Yes, um, yes. There must have been a little feeling of satisfaction when that happened. It was extremely gratifying. Uh, and also a pleasant surprise as as much for Tina and I as it was for everybody else. Um, but that song was mega, Genius of Love. Mm -hmm. And be, and before it, Wordy Rapping Hood. I mean, you know, talk about crossover. We crossed over, baby. <laughs> <laughs> It was. It was. It was inspiring to hear that in discos and in black clubs, and in uh, CBGB or or the Ritz at that period in New York. Yeah, or Danceteria or yeah. the Mud oh, Club. Yeah. yeah. When we come back, more of our conversation with Talking Heads drummer Chris France. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking to Chris Franz, the drummer of Talking Heads. 
Chris recently released his new book, Remain in Love, about his life and experience in music. Now let's get back to our conversation. I want to actually ask you about something I read Tina said. Uh, it's got to be 20 years ago. She had a uh -huh. vision. You know, somebody asked her, an interviewer asked her, and I couldn't find the quote to exactly give it to you, but I wanted to see your thoughts on it. Somebody asked her about what it was like, you know, to work with David Byrne and to work with Brian Eno. And she said, you know, I always have this vision of, of uh, Byrne, Eno, and Bowie someday in their retirement when they're 80 years old sitting on a porch and they're the only three people who can talk to each other these isolated <laughs> geniuses who never connected with the rest of humanity and of course Bowie is gone and that's sad but I wonder uh, to what extent uh, <laughs> did, did, did you uh, see that because Eno starts out great and he winds up being a real pain in the neck well I still have enormous respect for Brian and uh, he was a great producer for us he was perfect. But this is often the case, unfortunately. When, when things are going well, the business gets all messed up. And uh, mm -hmm. as great as he was as a producer and as a collaborator, he was also a pain in the neck when it came to business. He always was, I think the Yiddish call it a schnurrer. Somebody, mm -hmm. <laughs> you lend them $5 and they say, oh, could you lend me another 5 you know, it's like, <laughs> before we knew it, Brian was demanding to be flown on the Concorde. And he went back and forth across the Atlantic a lot. And he expected us to pay for him to fly on the Concorde. I never flew on the Concorde. I wish I had, but, you know, I thought it was too expensive. And uh, I write about it in the book. Uh, you, too, had the same problem. Paul McGinnis, the manager of U2, I ran into him one night. I think it was a Kirsty McCall show at, at Tramps in New York. And I said, oh, Paul, how you doing? Because we knew Paul and the band. And how, how, how's the new uh, U2 album? And he said, oh, it's nothing but problems. And I said, oh, really? How come? He says, Brian Eno. He keeps making more and more demands. And then he then he demanded to mix the record and we listened to it and it wasn't any the mixes weren't any good. And um I said, Well what are you gonna do? And he said, We're gonna do what we always do. We're gonna call Steve Lillywhite. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know that 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 sort of gives you an idea of the magnitude of of these kind of uh petty business problems nonetheless a handful of excellent albums with eno yes yes uh, i mean fantastic yeah you give a great anecdote about how you sort of came to recontextualize um al green's take me to the river in in the talking heads voice what you know you made it you made it your song i mean obviously it's al green's classic but it's also became yeah. one of your signature songs Eno played a role in that. Could you talk a little bit about how that yeah. came together with Eno's input? That was on uh, more songs about buildings and food, the re recording session at Compass Point in the Bahamas. And uh, it was our second album, our first time with Brian as producer. And 
we uh, we had all the songs very well rehearsed. We'd been performing them live on tour, and we were ready to go. All, all Brian had to really do was set up the mics and press record. But he made a few suggestions, and one of the suggestions was regarding Take Me to the River. He said, we, we had been playing it at the tempo that Al Green plays it, or maybe even a little faster. And Al Green recorded the song at a, at a pretty high tempo. We had been doing that, playing it that way. And Brian said, what if we slow it down? What if you play it as slow as possible without losing the groove? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay. Because, you know, it's, it's a ch challenge to play a groove slowly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's something that takes uh, a, a good deal of finesse and experience. But we managed to do it. And it did sound better. It was really cool. Gave the song much more space so these little musical events could happen in those spaces. It was our first top 40 hit. Yeah, and, and there were some little effects, too, on, on your drum drum sound, too, as well, right? Yes. He, he Brian had a little uh, portable, like, briefcase synthesizer, but uh, he would treat what he calls treat the sounds. So he would run, like, my snare drum, for example, through this little synthesizer and alter the sound, put effects on it, and, and it really worked very nicely. And he, he also used delays, you know, uh, we didn't have digital delays then, we had to use like uh, other types of delays. But um, yeah, the, that Take Me to the River was smoking, mm -hmm. and, and the bass line, ooh. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. know that bass yeah. player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you and Tina were a great rhythm section, our great rhythm section. The other thing that was fascinating about that period with Eno, um, the anecdote in the book about Remain in Light, like possibly not even being made because it seemed, well, you can tell the story, Chris, but I mean, I'm just amazed that this was like, you pulled that album out of nothing. It didn't seem like the talking heads were going to be working at that time, right? Yeah. Um, David and Brian had, had just finished, well, actually, they hadn't even finished. Uh, my life in the bush of ghosts and un unbeknownst to the rest of us we knew nothing about that recording because they they went out, they took the project out to san francisco and they worked out there away from all of us in the band and um evidently there had been some kind of dispute i don't know i still don't know what it was between david and brian and so uh Brian left, went back to New York, and David finished things up in San Francisco. 
And uh, the two of them didn't really want to speak to each other. Mm. And on top of that, David didn't really want to do another record with Talking Heads. He wanted to go in a solo direction. Mm-hmm. So Tina, you know, Tina had a good idea. She called up Brian and she said, Hey, Brian, uh, Chris and Jerry and I are having a jam session over here at our place. Why don't you come over and join us? And Brian (laughs) said, oh, but you know I don't play any instruments. And uh, Tina said, that's okay. We're not going to judge your musical talent. Just come on (laughs) over and jam with us. And he said, okay. And he came over, and we gave him a keyboard, and we were having a good time playing together. And then she got on the phone and said, I'm going to call David. And, and she called David and um, said, David, Chris and Jerry and I are having this great uh, jam session with Brian Eno. Why don't you come over and join us? <laughs> and David, I guess, thought about it for a minute or two and said, okay, I'll be right over. And within the hour, he was there with his guitar. And we started mm. the groundwork for what became Remain in Light at that mm. point and uh you know remain in light was entirely based on improvisations that we did in the studio and then then refined it into different parts different song sections yeah. and yeah. uh it, it was it was a new way of making a record for us mm-hmm. and, and and it it turned out pretty well oh uh, yeah <laughs> that's yeah. for sure Turned out really well, I'd say. Of course, the the band gets bigger after that. People are added on stage. The the, the production. Uh, it becomes a stage show. But in some ways, uh, Chris, as I was reading the book, it seemed as though, as if, uh, you know, there's two acts in Talking Heads, uh, everything up to Remaining in Light, uh, and including Remaining in Light, and then everything else was sort of um, after. You never knew <laughs> what was going to happen next, and it was uh, sort of on David's whims, and you and Tina were devoted to the group and wanted and made sacrifices to keep it going. Jerry had some struggles and then had to, to clean up. Um, you know, but it, do, you, do you see it as that way? After that, it becomes less of a band and more subject to David's whims, not in terms of collaboration, but just in what are we going to create? Well, at a certain point, it kind of became the David Byrne show. And that was fine with David. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but like I said, even on those later albums, and especially on our last album, Naked, which we recorded in Paris, the band was fully present and fully operational and fully like part of that chemistry. So I think I put it this way in in my book. People thought that... David Byrne was the goose that laid the golden egg. But in fact, he was the golden egg, and Talking Heads was the goose.
We've been talking to Chris France, author of Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina. It's been uh, it's been a great pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. You're very welcome. It, it was a pleasure for me too. Uh, stay healthy and enjoy yourself. That wraps up our conversation with Chris Franz, and now we want to hear from you, our listeners. What's your favorite Talking Heads song? Leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, Jim and I share some of our favorite songs from the Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club catalogs. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. This week, we are discussing all things Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. Earlier in the show, we interviewed the drummer for those two groups, Chris France, and we covered a lot of the great music from both bands. But, Greg, there is much more to discuss. We've only scratched the surface. We're going to put our two cents in now. Let's take a couple minutes and share some of our favorite tracks from Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. Why don't you lead us off, Mr. Cott? Thanks, Jim. I wanted to highlight the fact that Talking Heads was so adventurous and so innovative in the way they started incorporating dance rhythms into their music. Punk was uh, not noted as a particularly dance-focused music. In fact, in some respects, uh, people saw rock and punk as sort of an, uh, an antidote to the rising funk and disco movements, and I thought that was always wrong. And Talking Heads were one of those bands that said, no, no, we're not... We're not anti-disco or club music at all. In fact, we embrace those styles of music, and we want to make them part of our own thing. And I think where they really started to explore that was in their 1979 album, Fear of Music, their third studio album. The lead-off track on that album was a real clarion call for what they would become, Ezimbra. That song was based on the nonsense words of a German-born Dada poet named Hugo Ball, who died in 1927. He gets a co-writing credit on this particular song. David Byrne was increasingly fascinated with the idea of words as serving more of a percussive function rather than a sense of function. In other words, stop making sense, right? It's all about mm -hmm. the body, the body <laughs> music. Who are words? Who needs words? Words can be a drum. They can be fun. They can be rubbery and malleable. They can be meaningless. Free your mind and your butt will follow, as uh, Parliament Funkadelic was saying during this era. The album in which they begin to more overtly explore that vibe is right here, and it begins with that track. E. Zimbra not only uh, combines these nonsense words, but overlays them in a rhythmic pattern over music that is definitely influenced by West African high-life music. There's West African and Brazilian percussion on this particular song. The band was starting to incorporate outside musicians into their work. The song's all about forward motion with those guitars playing those chicken-scratch rhythm lines over the top of this matrix of percussion. And the interplay between Burns' rhythm guitar and Tina Weymouth's swooping bass is really key to the song and the keyboards that jerry harrison is playing kind of give it almost like a sci-fi carnival ride feel so the song is joyous it's celebratory but it's also strange and exotic the talking heads are starting to form the basis of what would become their next album the breakthrough remain in light if you want to know where remain in light started 
start with this song, E. Zimbra from Talking Heads, on Sound Opinions. You know, Greg, uh, E. Zimbra, a fantastic track, and you mentioned the African and Brazilian percussion. I think one of Chris France's strengths as a drummer is he played uh, very simply, or always sounded as if he was playing simply, because he held down the groove, but he left space. He left space for, in that song, Jerry Harrison's keyboard, or always his wife, Tina Weymouth, on bass. And I love a Tom Tom Club track from later in their career. We talked a lot about that incredible first album that it established that the hit makers in the band were actually Chris and Tina, you know, before Byrne ever had a solo hit. In 1991, Tom Tom Club puts out Dark Sneak Love Action. And there's a fantastic cover of one of my favorite songs, the hot chocolate hit, You Sexy Thing. <laughs> I guess in some ways, that 1975 song, originally by Errol Brown, was the lead singer of Hot Chocolate. It hasn't, you know, aged very well, You Sexy Thing. Uh, you're talking about a woman there, Errol. But when Tom Tom Club covered it, again, 91, you know, having Tina sing in that super laid back, cool, distanced way about, uh, I believe in miracles, you sexy thing. Uh, there's something incredibly powerful in her very understated, breathy vocal. Of course, it's got one of the greatest guitar riffs of all time. I think you paid tribute to that guitar hook at one point on the show. And it's got this bubbly tropical groove, because they sure did love recording in Jamaica, Tom Tom Club, one of their favorite getaways, Chris and Tina. And that seeps in, and again, leaves room for percussion. It's a great, great cover that brings something new. And if you'd never heard the song, you were going to love it instantly. If you had heard the song, you were going to be rewarded by hearing it through these new lenses. I just love this cover. You Sexy Thing by Tom Tom Club from 1991. Sexy thing. I'm not talking to you, Greg, <laughs> but uh, Tom Tom Club. You got to love that. Isn't that a great cover? Uh, I love it. I love High Chocolate's version, and uh, I love the fact that Tom Tom Club especially embraced that style of music and consistently drew upon it in their career. As did Talking Heads. I think I'm going to continue this thread where Talking Heads, the various members individually and collectively, were pursuing this vision of club music and dance music and incorporating funk into what they were doing. And for many fans, they came to know the band from that movie we referenced earlier, the Stop Making Sense movie that Jonathan Demme recorded in 1983 and then was released in 1984 and took the band to a new level of fame. 
And one of the reasons was, I mean, as we well knew from showing this movie a couple of times on Sound Opinions movie nights here in Chicago, the audience couldn't sit still during the movie, let alone during the concert. I mean, people were in the aisles dancing during the movie, and you can see why. There's something joyous about the music that the heads were making at this point in their career, beginning with Ezimbra and sort of moving through that Remain in Light era and into Speaking in Tongues, the studio album that they were releasing just around the time that this movie was being filmed. So you're hearing this idea of groove as paramount in the song that I'm going to play. It's Slippery People, and it's the moment in the film where the music starts to catch fire. You begin with this kind of stripped-down opening with just burn on the stage and he's joined one by one by the band members and then the full band is starting to array around him and the groove really starts to light up and people start getting out of their seats and they're dancing and the band is dancing and you cannot escape the infectious energy now in this song slippery people on the concert version the stop making sense version blows away the studio version is because of that power of that band and those dancers and the energy coming from the audience and what uh, Byrne was referencing in the song when he you know slippery people what is that he was talking about the worshipers in southern sanctified churches who when they were filled with the holy spirit they they'd start writhing and undulating while speaking in tongues and they were possessed by the spirit they were all body and they were just abandoning sense stop making sense it was more about this physical response, emotional, visceral response to spirituality. And there's biblical allusions in the lyrics, and there's a call and response style in the vocals that evokes gospel music, but most of all there is that driving groove in the song. The Franz Weymouth rhythm section abetted by Steve Scales on hand percussion, and man, if you can't dance to this, you know, you probably don't have feet. It's Slippery People from Talking Heads, their 1984 Stop Making Sense live album. Slippery People by Talking Heads. That's a good one, Greg. You do love the dance music, the grooves, always. You know, there's so many head songs I could have played. Life During Wartime and Don't Worry About the Government. Boy, there are two that uh, resonate now. But we spent a lot of time on Talking Heads 77. I want to focus on a tune from what I considered to be the last great Talking Heads album, Little Creatures, sixth in their catalog. There were records that followed, but the band, you can sense, was already pulling apart. Byrne was reluctant to collaborate with anyone anymore, really, especially the members of the Heads. But I want to focus on a song that's a rarity in the catalog. Now, obviously, it was a point with Chris France that he and Tina Weymouth and Jerry Harrison did not often get the songwriting credit they felt they deserved. You know, Byrne claimed the lion's share of the songwriting credits. But The Lady Don't Mind from Little Creatures is credited to the entire band, all four of them. And it's a beautiful, laid-back groove, again, 
where Franz is leaving a lot of room for other things to happen. An understated melody and a drama in Burns' vocals about this mysterious woman he's singing about, and those wonderful woodblocks, you know, that kind of punctuate the song that become almost a key hook. If Chris Franz wasn't the tasteful drummer he was, right up there with a Ringo Starr or a Charlie Watts, in terms of always playing what the song required, no more, and leaving room for others, you know, it wouldn't be as effective. And then, when everything kicks in midway through the tune, it takes it to a new higher level. Uh, I've always been very fond of Little Creatures. I think it's underrated in Talking Heads canon. And also I think it includes a line uh, that Burns sings, I don't know who wrote it, um, you know, about, I like this curious feeling. Well, you know, if there's one line in all of the Talking Heads lyrics that sum up what listening to Talking Heads is about, right? They don't ever feel like anybody else. I like this curious feeling. I know you do, too. Uh, this is The Lady Don't Mind by Talking Heads. The Lady Don't Mind, one of many favorite Talking Heads uh, songs, Greg. It's been fun to indulge with Chris France and all things Heads and Tom Tom Club. What do we have on the show next week? Well, Jim, next week we have uh, an interview with Phoebe Bridgers that we did a few years ago. We want to bring that back because it still sounds uh, terrific. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I think she blew up a little bit. Uh, a in, little in the bit intervening since. years. Yes. Great, great artist. And then we've got some songs about the sea. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed. I'm looking forward to that, especially because I know you get sick on boats. <laughs> For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. I'm sleeping in my bed again.